When you're a kid, they always said, figure out what you're good at and do it. Right? You always want to exploit your strengths. Your parents always tell you to exploit your strengths. And it's very, very good advice. Another way to succeed is to exploit your weaknesses. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Arthur Brooks is president of the public policy think tank American Enterprise Institute. In today's show, he explains why we need to reevaluate how we judge success and how thinking like an entrepreneur may help restart your life. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. In Houston recently, Arthur Brooks stumbled upon the secret to renewal in business, but more broadly, in life. In research for a documentary, he went to check out a prison entrepreneurship program. He discovered most graduates left prison without building the business they designed behind bars, but the work they did with the program left them with something more powerful. Brooks spoke on stage at the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. The annual gathering seeks solutions to problems keeping people from finding financial security. 400 policymakers, thought leaders, and social entrepreneurs gather for one day in Washington, D.C. to talk about widening the opportunity gap. Brooks is one of two speakers we're showcasing from the summit. We'll hear from Brooks later. First, spoken word poet Elizabeth Acevedo takes the stage. She brings her life experience as the only daughter of Dominican immigrants into her work. She's a National Slam champion and the 2016 Woman of the World Poetry Slam representative for Washington, D.C. Here's her energetic and engaging talk. I want to give thanks to the Aspen Institute for asking me to be here. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories um, that I think are important to this idea of the wound needing a witness. I got my master's in creative writing in a program that was about 25 folks in it. And I was the only student of Afro descent. I was the only student of an immigrant background. I was the only student from a major urban hub. I was born and raised in New York City. You might be able to tell from my accent. And it was a fascinating space to navigate. I got my undergraduate degree at the George Washington University, so I was familiar with PWIs. Like, this wasn't new to me. But in undergrad, it felt like a lot of the aggressions that I felt were very macro. It was very clear that certain people were coming from backgrounds that were inherited. I understood that. In a creative writing program, where you're submitting poems every week, and you're getting critique back, and it's being circled and question marks, and I'm like, oh, you didn't want to Google that? You didn't want to look that up, right? It's very different, and it feels very personal. And I'm going to give you all an example. One day, my professor came to class, and he's like this old school, like Robert Frost in the face, like long beard, right? And he's like, I just read the most amazing poem about deer. And y'all, I have no beef with deer, right? Like, I am not here to hate on anybody's wildlife. I think venison is delicious. Like, that was not, <laughs> that was not my issue. I do think there is this stereotype in the literary arts of what symbols right, are good enough to write about. And the deer and the clouds and certain flowers are one of them, right? And this professor, because grad school classes are long, for two and a half hours goes on about this deer. But then he took it one step further. 
And he wanted everyone in the room to go around and say if they were to write an animal ode, and an ode is a praise poem, right? What animal they would pick and why. And so it goes to one classmate, and my classmate is like, well, like Elizabeth Bishop, I would write about the blackbird. And I'm like, we saw that joint 13 times. Like, promise me, <laughs> like, you don't need to do the blackbird again. He goes to another classmate, he's like, I would write about sea anemones. And I'm Googling on the table, like, what is a sea anemone? <laughs> why would we write about that, right? And then my professor gets to me. It's my first year of grad school. I'm like, okay. They always say, write what you know. I'm trying to be, like, impress this person. I'm like, I would write about rats. <laughs> because if you grow up in any major city, you know you some rats, right? You know, pigeons are just rats with wings. You know, squirrels are just rats with nice coats. They're all rats. And we know them well. And in front of all of my classmates, in a space I often already felt isolated, my professor looked at me and laughed. And he said, rats are not noble enough creatures for a poem. Liz, I think you need more experiences. So I wrote this piece. It's called Rat Ode. It is my official clap back to that professor. <laughs> But mainly it serves as a reminder for any of us who have ever been told our stories are too small or too ugly or too little for high art, right? That we are all deserving of poetry. To the rat. Because you are not the admired nightingale. Because you are not the noble doe. Because you are not the picturesque ermine, armadillo, or bat. They have been written. And I don't know their song like I know your scuttling between walls, the scent of your collapsed corpse rotting beneath floorboards, your frantic squeal as you pull at your own fur from glue traps, ripping flesh from skin in an attempt to survive. Because in July of 97, you birthed a legion on 109th, swarmed from behind the dumpsters, made our streets infamous for something other than crack. Shoot, we nicknamed you Cat Killer. <laughs> Raced with you through open hydrants. Squeaked like you when Siete blasted aluminum bat into your brethren's skull. The sound slapped down dominoes. You rained that summer rat. And even when they sent exterminators half dead and on fire, you pushed on. Because even though you are an inelegant, simple, mammal bottom feeder, always freaking famished, little ugly thing, who feasts on what crumbs fall from the corners of our mouths. You live uncuddled, uncoddled, can't be bought at Petco and fed to fat snakes because you are not the maze rat of labs, pale, pretty-eyed, trained. You raise yourself, sharp, fang, clawed, scarred, patched, dark because of this. He should love you. But look at the beast, the professor tells me. The table is already full, and rat you, are not a right-worthy thing. Every time they say that, take your gutter, your dirt coat, filth this page, rat. Scrape your underbelly against streets, concrete. You better squeak and raise the whole world, rat. Let loose a plague of words, rat. And remind them that you, that I, we are worthy of every poem. Here. Thank y'all.
What I'd wish I'd known then was that eventually I would have to turn this poem in, right? <laughs> and my thesis defense. And so my thesis defense comes around and I'm like, I'm gonna tuck this into the back. Maybe he won't see it, right? And I'm, I'm sitting in the defense and it's this professor who was the head of the department, right? So the person who like signs off on whether or not I graduate and two other professors. And we're 58 minutes in, got two minutes left, right? I'm like, mom, I made it, I'm good, right? And he goes, Liz, I have one last question. I'm like, all right. He's like, about this rap poem. I'm like, no, right? Like, and um, I'm like, okay. He says, it's quite clever, but what inspired it? <laughs> right, and it's that moment where you're like, you, bruh, you inspired it. But you're also like, all right, I need to graduate. So you're like, oh man, inspiration comes in all kinds of ways. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's also, it's this like, dissonance, right? Because it was humorous, but also this moment where I realized, wow, someone could say something that fundamentally changed how I wrote, right? That I decided to write the rap from that moment forward, that I realized that not everyone is my reader. But had I been a different, you know, come from a different background or come from somewhere else, that could have really crushed what I thought I could write about. That I think there's something insidious in the ways with which we redline and gentrify and push people into certain neighborhoods and then tell them that the cultural markers that they grow up with, the cultural currency that they have, isn't something they can use in certain settings. That to tell someone in a body like mine, which is a descendant of colonialization, which is a descendant of, of hegemony, right? To tell someone like me, you must write about nobility. What access do I have to nobility? And I'm talking about actual official nobility, right? Like aristocracy, what access do I have? Then what do I write about? If that is the only thing you tell me is worthy of a poem. That I think about the spaces I work in that are very much institutions that they've been told what they can and can't say. I worked at a juvenile detention facility here in DC. I worked there for a year and a half, mostly working with young women. And two years before that, I had worked at a middle school. I taught eighth grade English. And I was told very specifically what my students could write about. And I would go into those spaces and I would give them these prompts. And my students had very specific things they wanted to say and it had nothing to do <laughs> with these prompts, right? And I would get so frustrated that they were making me look bad, that they weren't fulfilling the assignment, that I didn't know how to grade this according to a standard because they weren't following directions. The majority of the girls in the program that I taught at the juvenile detention facility had come from abandonment. So they grew up with no parents, right? Or with a parent that came and went. I would say that seven out of 10 in every group, and the group changed continuously, had, had a sexual assault encounter at some point, had had domestic violence as a part of their life. Oftentimes they were there for things like truancy, so not going to school or after hours being outside, or they were there for shoplifting or they're for misdemeanors that in any other neighborhood, right, wouldn't have resulted in them staying at a detention facility for weeks. And they came back, right? Adjudicated youth centers are interesting because they're usually in an in-between spot. But I would see these girls throughout the year and a half over and over. And one day it really hit me, I was so frustrated. I'd asked this student to just write this one thing and she was acting out and she goes, I don't wanna write poems. I'm like, I'm here trying to do something for you. <laughs> you don't want to write poems. And I had to take such a step back in terms of what I believed my role was in that room. 
because I had it twisted. I thought I was here to save this girl. And that was not my job. It was not my job to tell her what story she could or could not tell, right? She got enough of that. The one hour a week that you have poetry class should not be where you get in trouble. When the girl at the detention center asks you again, but why we gotta write these damn poems anyways? Fold back the army knife of your tongue. This is not a place to create more bruises. Teaching creative writing is like convincing skin to graft itself after being wounded. So you should not teach and harm. They must be mutually exclusive. Remember, these are black and brown girls in America. There is hurt here, inherited or otherwise, and trauma is a tapeworm growing in the gut until it gets so big you have to reach into your throat and pull it out from between your smile. Remember, teaching is not community service. Remember, teaching is not an automatic pass to calling yourself an activist. Remember, you are not here to save lives. We are all working on our own mosaic of aches. So when the girl at the detention center asks you again, but why we gotta write these damn poems anyways? Tell her, we write to remind ourselves we are still here and that we can still heal. One of the things my girls would often want to write about had to do with beauty standards. They were fascinated, and I think oftentimes because they didn't see a lot of folks that didn't come in in uniform, they were always fascinated with what I was wearing and like my nail color and like what did you do to your hair today? Like it was like their magazine once a week for me to come into that space. But there was also this very clear um, layering, right, or totem pole of beauty that they understood. What are you mixed with, miss? Where's your hair from? You look foreign. There were all of these questions and things that they'd been taught about what a body like mine meant in that space and what it meant in reflection to them, right? That you are pretty because you have this, this, that, and I am not pretty because of this, this, and that. And there was clear dynamics in the space of who could do what. Oh, well, she liked that because she light skin, right? There was this like um, understanding they had of one another and the program was mostly black and Latina, right? Like they were all brown women, brown and black, but they all had a hierarchy. Over the weekend, there was an article tweeted out by Cosmopolitan, which they've since revoked, saying that science and this ancient Greek theorem could determine whether or not someone was considered beautiful and that they had figured out the top 10 most beautiful women in the world using science and this ancient Greek theorem. <laughs> there was not one woman of color on the entire list. And so when I would sit in class with these young girls and ask them like, where did you get this from? Where did you learn this? How did you figure out or like come upon this decision that you weren't beautiful? I often thought it was the house, it was this, it was that, but it's like our whole society tells this myth of what is beautiful. We're gonna go to the Greeks to ask them who they think is beautiful here, <laughs> right? But that I grew up in a household where there were very clear ideas of what beauty was as well. My parents are both from the Dominican Republic, which 
is an island, um, island nation shared with Haiti, and there's a fascinating relationship with race there. That you cannot be the first place that was ever colonized on this side of the world. You cannot be the place that had the first slaves ever. You cannot be the place that had the first site of black republic, right, of the first free nation on this side of the world, and not think there's gonna be a contentious relationship with race. That I grew up not being able to call myself black, although the island is 80% Afro-descendant, because there's this idea that there is no race, we're all just Dominicans. And when people talk about post-racial societies, I think how problematic that can be, because I think that's the, the myth they're trying to create in the DR. But it's like, well, only certain people have these positions, and they all look the same. And so we can't say that they're all just Dominicans. There's something else at play. I grew up very, very clear on what aesthetics I had to follow if I was going to be beautiful, if I was going to be classy, if I was going to be elegant. And in my case, and in the Dominican Republic, there's this fascination with hair and with straight hair. And although I go into certain spaces, they're like, oh, I love your hair. I didn't grow up with my hair curly. I grew up straightening it every single week because I was told that that was sophisticated, and that to wear my hair natural wasn't a sign of class. My senior year of college, I fell in love, and my partner is black American, family from North Carolina, don't speak no Spanish, don't dance no salsa, right? Like, <laughs> and I told my mom, and she said, but what if you two have children? What about their hair? <laughs> and that she wasn't trying to be malicious and that somehow makes it worse. That that professor wasn't trying to be malicious, right? That that student wasn't. But that there are ways that we learn self-harm that come from these innocent questions. So my mother tells me to fix my hair. And by fix, she means straighten. She means whiten. But how do you fix this shipwrecked history of hair? The true meaning of stranded. When tresses hugged tight like African cousins in ship bellies that they imagined their great grandchildren would look like us and would hate them how we do. Trying to find ways to erase them out of our skin, to iron them out of our hair, this wild tangle of hair that strangles air. You call them wild curls. I call them breathing. Ancestors spiraling. Can't you see them in this wet hair that weighs like hello? And yo, they say Dominicans do the best hair. They can wash, set, flatten the spring in any lock. But what they mean is we're the best at swallowing amnesia. In a cup of morir soñando. Die dreaming because we'd rather do that than live in this reality caught between orange juice and milk, between reflections of the sun and whiteness. What they mean is, why would you date a black man? What they mean is, a prieto cocolo. What they mean is, why would two oppressed people come together? It's two times the trouble. What they really mean is, have you thought of your daughter's hair? And I don't tell them that we love like sugar cane. Brown skin, pale flesh, meshed in pure sweetness. The children of children of fields. Our bodies curve into one another like an echo. And I let my current of curls blanket us from the world. How our children will be beautiful. Of dust skin and diamond eyes, hair of reclamation. How I will braid pride down their back. So from the moment they leave the womb, they will be born in love with themselves.
My mother tells me to fix my hair. And so many words remain unspoken because all I can reply is you can't fix what was never broken. My mother's actually a lovely woman. I think that's like really important to say, right? That we all carry prejudice and we just have to be, be aware of challenging them, right? And undoing them, that there's no one who doesn't have any prejudice. But what does it mean to, to work on that? I, I only have like one last thing to say and it's the stories I chose to tell today are ones that have very specific cultural markers to them. And going back to that rat ode of what are the markers that we say deserves space of being told, that I'm really concerned with the ways with which we say that certain cultural groups and the symbols that they have have no place in our national narrative. And I just want to make sure that as we walk through spaces, we realize that there's a lot of macro at play, right? And why things are what they are. But sometimes it's those little things that we say every day that build up as to why someone thinks they have value or don't have value. So we have to be mindful of the stories and myths we are choosing to tell about people and that we are allowing them to tell about themselves. I want to thank you so much for being here and the work that you all are doing. Elizabeth Acevedo is a spoken word poet. She was on stage in March at the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity in Washington, D.C. You can find Aspen Ideas To Go in a growing number of places. We're on iTunes, Google Play, NPR One, and SiriusXM's Insight Channel. Rate us on iTunes. Your review helps others discover our show. Next up, we hear from Arthur Brooks. He's the president of American Enterprise Institute. It's a public policy think tank. He's also the author of 11 books, and he's working on a new one called The Startup Life. His talk is also from the Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. Um, I'm the president of AEI, American Enterprise Institute, so the middle word suggests I should be thinking an awful lot about entrepreneurship. And I've been hearing now, I've been looking at data and hearing now for a year or more that we're heading into a time of the lowest levels of entrepreneurship that we've seen in at least the past three decades. That millennials are less likely to start businesses, that they're less likely to be geographically mobile. It's a period of low entrepreneurship. Okay, now, that has connotations, implications for our economy, but I'm going to suggest that that might have implications for how we deal with poverty and mobility and opportunity in this country as well. Now, when you're in my business and when you're running a think tank, one of the things that you quickly learn is that when you have a problem, an insoluble problem, like we seem to have so many in the United States today, you don't solve it by hiring more scholars and all thinking in the same way more. You solve problems by thinking differently. And so you have to look for, for an epiphany about the thing that's really creating problems. All of us have had this experience you know, where you suddenly have this blinding flash. You think differently about a problem in your life. 
And that's what you need to look for. Um, there are lots of examples. I mean, there's sort of everyday examples. One that often it occurs to me is that, you know, even in, in just ordinary life, I have you know, a house full of teenagers, which is, I'm not trying to tell you my problems. And, uh, <clears throat> but I have a, you know, I was at this relatively poorly, you know, this parent-teacher conference that was going badly. And one of my sons, a teenage kid, 16 years old, getting, you know, having a grades problem. <clears throat> and I mean, it was really, it was going poorly, the parent-teacher conference. And my wife and I, we left and we were really alarmed and we were driving home. And, and I was driving and it was silent. And finally she says, we need to think differently about this problem. I said, yeah, how? And she says, uh, at least we know he's not cheating. <clears throat> right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want to think differently about entrepreneurship. Now, I taught at Syracuse University for a long time before I came to AEI. And, and one of the questions that my MBA students asked me all the time was, what's the secret to entrepreneurship? Right? They want to know, the single thing that great entrepreneurs all have in common. <clears throat> so I, I started years ago, eight years ago, I started this research project to find the secret to entrepreneurship. And I did what you always do in these research projects. I, I lined up the list of the greatest entrepreneurs, past and present, you know, the billionaires, the industrialists, the software gurus, the biotech types, the famous people, and I wanted to see what they all had in common in their lives. Okay, so we're talking about Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and, and today you know, Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates, etc. And, and I started looking for the commonalities in their life. It's a good research design, and, and I'm going through it. And, and I immediately ran into these two big problems. And number one was it's an incredibly small group. For, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Um, the Gallup polling organization has this thing called Strengths Finder, and, and a lot of people subscribe to the service. You want to find out what you're really good at, so you go to the Gallup Strengths Finder, and 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 it tells you all about your personality, it tells you what you should do for a living, right? It's kind of Myers Briggs type of stuff, and you learn about yourself, strengths. You want to play on your strengths. Hold that thought. So I'm going to come back to that here in a second. And the, here's the depressing thing about entrepreneurship. The Gallup Strengths Finder finds that only 2% of Americans have an entrepreneurial orientation. Only 2%. I don't want to find that because it suggests that that's not a really American thing and, and it doesn't give me very many degrees of freedom for solving the problem of insufficient entrepreneurship to bring communities back in America today, which is my stock and trade. Okay, and furthermore, by the way, it says that only a quarter of that 2% or 0.5% of the American population is capable of running an organization. So you got three quarters of these really entrepreneurial people who are a complete disaster. And, and, and so you're, now you're down to one half of 1% that can actually be successful entrepreneurs. Okay, so that's not so great. That's problem number one. Here's problem number two, which is much worse. Okay, so I, I'm looking at this work by uh, a psychiatry professor at Hopkins named John Gartner, and he writes this fabulous book called The Hypomanic Edge, where he looks at the character of entrepreneurs. And they're... They're just they're energetic and they're visionary and they're full of ideas, but that's not all. They're impulsive, they're self-centered, they're paranoid, they have terrible family relationships, and they're unhappy. Great stuff. So that doesn't sound like success to me. What's the secret to successful entrepreneurship? Define success. I dropped the research project. There's nothing to do with this, right? I mean, if I can't define success in a meaningful way, and there aren't very many of them, I can't find anything generalizable that I want to tell my students. And, and in point of fact, I don't want to go out into American communities and say, do this. I don't want more unhappy people. The world's unhappy enough. So I let it sit. 
for a long time. As a matter of fact, until last year. And then I had an epiphany. I found the true secret to entrepreneurship. And I'm going to share it with you. And if I do my job in the next 15 or 20 minutes, you're going to have it, and we're going to be able to apply it. And furthermore, you're going to be able to apply it in your own life, and before you go to bed tonight, you're going to be a happier person. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Big promises. So let's see. So what happened to me a year ago that made me so confident that I can give you the secret, the true secret to entrepreneurship? I was making a documentary film that's going to come out sometime next year. And I was looking at, at the organizations in the United States that are the highest performing organizations that look at the periphery of society, the margins of our culture, where people have the, the farthest to go to put their lives together, to build their own lives, to really earn their own success. These are inspirational stories to me, for sure, but they're always a little daunting. Um, because you're looking at people that have experiences that most of us in this room haven't had. And there's one group that is unbelievably high-performing in Houston. That's called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. Just what it sounds like, right? In the corner pocket for entrepreneurship, for sure. It's the second word in the name of this group. And I I wanted to check this group out because, for for one, they're taking on an unbelievably important problem in, in our society. Most of you are familiar with it, but most Americans aren't, which is that we have a huge population of people that have been in prison but now aren't. Okay. To be, to be specific, the best estimate that we have at AEI is that there are 23 million Americans walking around who have been in prison and who are now free. Now, the weirdest thing is that the U.S. government doesn't keep any data on this population. We don't know where they are. We don't know how old they are. We just can assume they're mostly men. They're mostly younger, right? And, and the best estimates that we can come up with is that they're 70% unemployed. A 70% unemployed. Now, this is the... Perfect recipe for disaster. <clears throat> Guys who've been in prison, they're younger men, and they, and they can't find jobs. Okay? So we try to come up with, in our criminal justice reform programs at AEI, we try to come up with all sorts of solutions. Do we ban the box? Do we have worker retraining? But I also want to know what great organizations around America have done in this population. So I go to the Prison Entrepreneurship po- uh, Program. Why? Why? Because they have a population from the Texas penitentiary system The guys that come out, on average, have a 50% likelihood of going back to prison within the first two years after being released. But this group has a 7% likelihood of the guys returning to prison. One-seventh is likely to return to prison. They're doing something right. So I go down, and I'm looking at this program, and it's it's super inspirational. All of the guys are in their last year of prison. They're all going to be released. Some have been in for a pretty long time and for really serious crimes. And, and what they do is they, they, have, they think about their dream business. They put together a business plan, and they do elevator speeches, and, and they pitch each other. And it's, it's not, you know, large molecule biotech firms. It's, you know, it's a barbecue shack and a landscaping business and stuff that they actually know. And they describe it with such vivid detail that you'll want to be part of it. And they're doing their elevator pitches, and they're like in their orange jumpsuits doing these things. And you know in a few months they're going to get out, and they're going to start these businesses. Really, really inspirational. And I know that the program is a success because the guys aren't going back to prison, right? And so I'm I'm just hopped up on the whole concept. I want to go to the businesses, and I say, how many of the guys have actually started their successful businesses? How many do the startups when they get out? And the answer is 16%. 16%. 84% don't start the businesses. So I'm like, that's not success. But, but 
they stayed out of prison, so what's going on? So then it's kind of a conundrum for me. It's, it's a real paradox. And I'm looking for the results, the solutions, and I start talking to the guys in the program. And I, I say, well, tell me about your idea for the barbecue place or the landscaping business or whatever. And they'll tell you about it, but then they immediately, they immediately start using the language of entrepreneurship that they used, but talking about the stuff that really matters. They'll talk about risk-taking and explosive rewards and proactiveness as fathers and as husbands and as citizens, because that's the stuff that mattered. Here's the epiphany. I went to Houston to look at startup businesses, and what I found are startup lives. That's the secret. I didn't realize that. And, and, and here's the first really big epiphany for me that grew out, of, grew out of the first one. You know, our heroes are all wrong. You know, we, we, we put on a pedestal people who are not very happy. And they're looking for the, the rewards that we teach our kids are not very important. Look, I admire the software guys and the bankers and the hedge fund. I, I admire that because they work hard and they deserve their rewards. But you know who I want my kids to be like? <laughs> my teenagers? The ex-cons. So weird. And, you know, I got one of them that's on track to be an ex-con. So it's all, you know, it's all good, right? <laughs> huh. So this changes my perspective a lot. We need to look at the right people and hold up the right paragons of the kind of virtue that we're looking for in our society. And if we do that, then we can be teaching life as an enterprise as opposed to business per se. And this, my friends, is a secret to renewal. That's the first point that I want to make that's changed my perspective about the secret to entrepreneurship and the way that I talk about it. Here's the second point, which is my promise to you that I'm going to give you one of the big secrets that they actually taught me that you can apply. See, if I believe that they're doing it right, then it better be right for me too. Now, I'm writing a book right now called The Startup Life that has all the secrets, as far as I can tell, in there, right? But I want to tell you the one that was the most surprising to me that I should have known that I didn't and that each one of us can use. You know, let's go back to Gallup and their Strengths Finder. When you're a kid, they always said, figure out what you're good at and do it, right? You always want to exploit your strengths. Your parents always tell you to exploit your strengths. That's why the Gallup service is available, and it's very, very good advice. The guys in PEP reminded me that that's not the only way to succeed. Another way to succeed is to exploit your weaknesses. Really paradoxical, right? But when I talk to the guys, you know, that when they're talking about the really entrepreneurial things that they're doing in their lives, a lot of them are counseling people, kids in high school, so they don't go to prison. <laughs> That's turning your weakness into a strength. They'll talk to guys who've been addicted to drugs and alcohol, as they have been, helping them to not go all the way down the road and winding up in prison and ruining their lives the way that they had in the first place. They talk to guys who, who, who are starting families, about how to have a family where you take care of your children and you have integrity in your family life. Why? Because they didn't have it. <laughs> Their weakness becomes somebody else's strength. Their weakness becomes a source of empathy and connection to other people. Now, that observation 
was really helpful for me because I started to notice that people who are inventive, people who are innovative all over our society, they tend to exploit their weaknesses too. Now, for years, before I got into the business of economics, I made my living as a, as a classical musician. That was my job. I was a professional French horn player for 12 years. And when I was 19, I dropped out of, high, dropped out of college, and I went on, because it wasn't for me, and, or, you know, kicked out, or whatever, splitting hairs, <laughs> and uh, water under the bridge. And uh, I, I went on the road playing classical music, and I, and, 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 and I loved it, right? And and I learned a lot about the composers that I loved the most. And a lot of their stories, really, I mean, these were tr- terrific entrepreneurs, cultural entrepreneurs, were stories about weakness being turned into strength. Let me tell you one. It had a big impact on me. And, and, and it doesn't matter if you don't know anything about classical music. You're going to know this composer. Ludwig von Beethoven. Beethoven uh, was born in 1770, died in 1827. And he was a real character, sort of a, a chronic malcontent. He treated people poorly. He was really arrogant. But he was known for being an unbelievably brilliant composer. He was a child prodigy on the piano. By the time he was eight, he played better than most professional pianists of the day. By the time he was 12, he was writing compositions that sounded like they were written by master composers and professors at the conservatory. His parents absolutely exploited this. They gave him the best possible teacher who was also a famous composer of the day named Franz Josef Haydn, who was Beethoven's teacher. And, and, and Beethoven, by the time he was in his early 20s, was one of the greatest composers in Germany and Austria. Okay, during the, you know, the, the most fruitful period of, of classical composition. Incredible. And he was playing absolutely to his strengths. If you listen to his music from around the year 1800, it was beautiful, but conventional. It sounded like what everybody else did. And then tragedy struck Beethoven's life. <laughs> Beethoven was, he wrote a lot of letters, volumes of letters to people all around him, to his friends and to his family. And, and all of his letters at the time, they had one complaint. Composition's going well, but I have a problem. I have a weird buzzing in my ears. Hmm. Now, he didn't know why. We know why in retrospect. If you know anything about Beethoven, you know he went deaf. What's worse if you're a composer than going deaf? It's, I mean, your strength is literally becoming your weakness. His, and, and, you know, he would talk about what it sounded like. The sounds would swoosh around his ears, and he couldn't hear anything. And, and you would look at his scores from the time, and it looked like chicken scratch on the page. Really tragic stuff. From the period from 1800 to 1816, from the age of 30 to 46, his world fell into total silence. In the last 11 years of his life, he heard literally not one sound. What did he do? Stopped going out, stopped playing the piano, stopped conducting orchestras, which is how he made his living, but he kept writing music. <clears throat> Here's the weird thing. Because he was deaf, he didn't know the music that was going on around him, and his music changed. He would write these pieces, and they got weirder and weirder. Nobody had ever heard anything like it, and it was, his music was getting trashed in the, in the press, you know, the Vienna Times. When he, you know, he wrote his Ninth Symphony, the famous Ninth Symphony with the Ode to Joy, right? They trash it, which is just like the mainstream media, isn't it? Like, you know, it's like, <clears throat> they trash a deaf guy's music. It's just so uncool. But, it was, but, but, but here's the amazing thing. All the young composers were listening to it and saying, oh, that's so amazing. They'd never heard anything like it because nothing like that had ever existed. Beethoven created the romantic period in classical music because he went deaf. That is weakness becoming strength. 
And that inspired me, and I remembered that, and you see this all across society. And this is, a, this is actually a principle that we can use, too. There's a lot of literature in, in behavioral psychology that shows this, in behavioral economics. Uh, there's one paper that's really capturing my imagination. It's from the Review of Economics and Statistics. It's a famous, kind of a fancy economics journal by a, a, a Polish economist who teaches at the University of Southern Denmark. And he was actually looking at, at, at artists. And one of the great weakness of artists is sadness, is melancholy and depression. And he was looking at the work of a whole bunch of artists and, and the letters that they wrote and doing a content analysis on the letters to see the number of happy words versus number of sad words, simulating the levels of depression among composers and artists. And this is a classic thing for an economist to do. He finds that a 38% increase in sadness leads to one major new composition. Not 37%, right? It's a 38% increase in sadness. The bottom line is this. Weakness always can become strength and a source of greatness if we use it as such. PEP, Prison Entrepreneurship Program, these ex-cons, the scales fell from my eyes because they reminded me of this case. So think about your own life. What's the weakness that you're running from? Here's mine. So those years when I was playing in the orchestra, the one thing I really bugged me was having dropped out of college. I know it's stupid, but all the way through my 20s, I was playing in the Barcelona Symphony. And it was a great life and all that. But you know when you're in this fancy world of artists and intellectuals, and people, the one question everybody asks you, where'd you go to college? And I'd say, I didn't go to college. And they go, huh, right? Huh. And it just stuck in my craw, right? And, and, and you know, my dad was a college professor, and my grandfather was a college professor, and it was just, it didn't feel right. So, but I had you know, no money, and I was on the road all the time. And so somebody suggested, why don't you go to correspondence school? Hmm. So I did a bunch of research, and I found this correspondence school in Trenton, New Jersey, called Thomas Edison State College. It's in an old warehouse in Trenton. And, uh, and so I got all the materials, and I started taking classes, studying. And, and I got my bachelor's degree right before my 30th birthday <clears throat> in economics. And I got A's, right? And it's correspondence school, so I don't want to overblow it. But I was really proud of it. I was really proud of it. I was have to tell you, I was so proud of it. And one of my mail-order professors, he sends me this letter. He says, congratulations, you did a great job. And he says, you should go get a PhD. And I said, whoa. PhD? Really? You think I could? And he says, yeah, I bet you could get your PhD from Harvard. Huh. And, and he really got my confidence up. So I, I applied to the economics program at Harvard University. And, and, and I, put in the, I put love into my application, right? I put love. And, and it, it beat me back from the post office. It got rejected so fast, right? <laughs> they're like, no. They, it turns out they're not in the market for a 30-year-old college dropout French horn player with a correspondence school degree. I mean, who knew, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> but then, here's where, and this is how I'm learning the value of my college education, the value of my degree. And so, believe it or not, I called them up. I mean, I said to my wife, I'm going to see how close I came. I just want to know. It was just like idiotic. And I call him up, and, I, and this nice lady from the, from the admissions office, she answers the phone, and I, say, and I tell her, I say, I'm, I'm not mad, I just want to know if I came close, because I was desperate for information. And, and, and I, she says, okay. And, and I hear you know, opening and closing filing cabinets and papers rustling, and then she comes back to the phone after two minutes, and she says, um, not close. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then I'm like bargaining. I'm like, well, isn't the top half? And she's like, no. And, and it, was, it was 
unbelievably humiliating, right? And, and, I, and, and it just stuck with me. And so you know what I did? I never told anybody about that degree. I never told anybody about it. It was accredited, so I kind of slipped in in a sort of not quite, you know, a, a PhD program that wasn't quite paying attention. And, and I got my PhD, and I became a college professor, and I taught at Syracuse for a long time, and I never told anybody about it. Right? Because all my colleagues went to Harvard, Princeton. They all went to these fancy universities, great universities. And they say, Where'd you go to college? I'd be like, oh, and, and change the subject, right? And then in 2008, I became president of AEI. I came to Washington, D.C. And man, all of my colleagues were my intellectual heroes from the best universities. And once again, I didn't tell anybody about this correspondence school degree. And the second year that I'm president of AEI, I hire this scholar um, named Andrew Kelly, and who and he's a great scholar. He's a political science PhD from Berkeley. He's undergraduate from Dartmouth. I mean, the guy's just everything I wanted to be, but wasn't. And, and he does work on higher ed. And higher ed's all screwed up in this country. It's too expensive. There's too much debt. There's no, there's no intellectual diversity to speak of. It's a huge problem in this country. And I said, you know, they're all, they have academic freedom at AEI. I said, do whatever you want to do work on. I mean, they're like professors at AEI. And he says, great. And I said, what's your first project? He says, my first project, I've always wanted to study sketchy fly-by-night diploma mills and, and correspondence schools that are not worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I felt like, like the sheriff was on my tail, right? <laughs> and like, you're like, or, 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 and like I'm running up a dry creek bed. And <clears throat> but I'm being cool, right? Maybe nothing happens, right? So... You know, you know, like, and maybe my board never finds out or something. So a month after he starts this project, I get an email from Andrew at like 1 or 2 in the morning. And here's what it says. It says, Dear Arthur, I've been looking at the Wikipedia site for this place called Thomas Edison State College, this correspondence school in Trenton, and they're claiming that you're an alum. <clears throat> so, 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 dude, you got to get this cleared up, right? <laughs> so... So I'm kind of in a bind at this point, right? I, I can't lie about it, so I decided to write about it in the New York Times. And I called it, I, called, I wrote an article, I wrote, I wrote a column called My Cheap Valuable College Degree. And I explained how I got my, I was poor, and my wife was working a minimum wage job. And I got my entire bachelor's degree, all the classes, all the books for 10 grand in today's dollars, including a sticker for the car, which I did not put on the car because I was embarrassed. <laughs> and, and I published it, and it stayed at the, like the number one piece in the New York Times for like two weeks. And I started getting calls and emails from all over the country. This, I was not expecting this. I, I thought, you know, go big or go home. I was just going to write it. But I started hearing from people who were like, yeah, yeah, I went there too, and it changed my life. And... and and, and one of the people, it, or, or my kid dropped out 10 years ago, and, and I suggested that he looked into this place, and he's, I think he's going to do it, right? And all these people at the periphery of American society that need opportunity, and they're natural entrepreneurs. And they looked at this, and they said, hey, that guy at that think tank in Washington, D.C., he did this. Maybe I can do this, too. And you know what occurred to me? My career is morally dedicated to opportunity, that's what I want for everybody. I'm a warrior for opportunity and mobility for people who have less power than me. That's the purpose of why I'm at AEI. I believe that's one of the reasons God put me on earth. But you know what? 
I was ashamed of the one way that I truly got opportunity. I thought it was my weakness. No, no. That was my strength. And you know what? The, the, the president of that college calls me up, and he offers me this honorary doctorate. right? Because, like, hey, one of my guys made good. Weird, right? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he didn't know. I mean, it's, he didn't know. It's, and, uh, and so I went, and I spoke at graduation. I didn't know what I was at graduation for a correspondence school. And I found, like, nine guys in a room in Trenton or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's at the Trenton Ice Rink. <laughs> Where the, you know, the hockey team that's now bankrupt used to play, and it's, Trenton's a sad place, and, and there's 5,000 people in this hockey rink, and they're walking across the stage one after the other by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I'm sitting there in this cap and gown looking at my people. <laughs> and you know, they were, half of them were minorities, and a third of them were, were active military, and all of them were the first people in the history of their families to go to college. <laughs> and this one lady, and this is really, this really, and this, this had a big impact on me, she, they get to say their name and one thing, their name and one thing, right? And she stops and she says her name, and she says, and for this moment, I want to thank my five children and the son of the living God. <laughs> and I said, that's my sister. And I'm actually proud of that. Your strength actually is your weakness, if you see it as such. So here are the three things that I want to leave you with tonight. There's a public policy implication and there's a moral implication. We need in this country the secret to entrepreneurship. What is it? Forget the billionaires. Learn from the masters, the people who've treated their life like an enterprise. Second, these are the people that we need to hold up as the models of American courage and virtue. Because they're the people that we want to be. Remember who our heroes are and act as such. And number three, if you want to live your life as a startup starting today, don't run away from your weaknesses. Remember that those are actually the sources of strength that connect you to our brothers and sisters here and around the world. Thank you. Arthur Brooks is the president of American Enterprise Institute. He's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. He spoke in March at the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.